Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. It's time for another episode of Discovering the Old Testament. In this installment, number 27 in our series, we will talk about two of the more colorful prophetic characters in the Old Testament, Elijah the Tishbite and his successor, Elisha. It may seem strange that I've titled this episode Moses 2.0. My reason for doing so is because of how the Old Testament viewed these particular prophets. Explanations follow. First, we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, which is structured as a set of three speeches given by Moses just before the Israelites cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. This book, as we discussed earlier, is the product of what scholars now call the Deuteronomistic history that includes Deuteronomy, obviously, but also the books of Kings, where we were with our stories of Ahab and Jezebel last week, and where Elijah and Elisha are about to come on to the scene. One of the primary themes of the Deuteronomists is that Israel's destruction was because of her failure to live up to the obligations of her covenants with God. One of the biggest of these failures was the threat of polytheism, turning to foreign deities either when things got bleak or simply because it was attractive somehow. Deuteronomy 18, 13-15 reads as follows, You must remain completely loyal to the Lord your God. Although these nations that you are about to dispossess do give heed to soothsayers and diviners, as for you, the Lord your God does not permit you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. These verses are very clear. If the people need a prophet like Moses, God will raise one up explicitly as an alternative to the pagan magicians who filled similar roles in other religious systems. One interesting thing to note about this and other texts related to magic workers in the Old Testament is that the Bible clearly believes that this pagan magic works, it's just that the Israelites are forbidden to make use of it. For example, Saul gets himself into a heap of trouble by successfully resorting to necromancy to consult the shade of the prophet Samuel. That said, Second Isaiah is very skeptical about the powers of idols made of wood or metal to be little more than doorstops. Moses being placed in explicit opposition to pagan magic is a very important aspect of the Exodus that is often lost on modern readers because we live in a world that neither believes in magic nor has the same universal understanding of the rules that governed it as existed in ancient times. We discussed this in more detail in our podcast on Exodus, but to recap, Moses was definitely engaged in what we might call a magical contest with the magicians of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Moses, however, went to considerable lengths to avoid having the miracles associated with the plagues of Egypt look like they were being done because he was a magician. 
More pertinent to our story, the Bible shows Moses struggling to hold the Israelites to a monotheistic religious construct, which for that time was a very radical thing. He was uncompromising in his insistence that God, and God only, was to be the object of Israel's veneration and worship. This brings us back to Elijah. As we dig into his exploits, as recorded in the Book of Kings, it becomes clear that the authors want to portray him as just such a new Moses as Deuteronomy describes, raised up at a time of national crisis to do battle against the forces of polytheism. Unlike Moses, however, Elijah, whose name, by the way, means, My God is Yahweh, is standing squarely outside the power structure. The northern kingdom is under the reign of Ahab, the son of Omri, and his Phoenician wife Jezebel, who is a dedicated worshipper of Baal. Jezebel's enthusiasm for her religion is such that she built and supported a large community of Baal's prophets to oversee an extensive cultic presence that was not only pushing aside Yahwism, but hunting down and killing Yahweh's prophets. It had reached the point that Yahweh's prophets were in hiding. Elijah was the last one still at large, and Ahab and Jezebel were going to extraordinary lengths to find him and kill him. Meanwhile, there had been a severe drought and famine, an act attributed to Yahweh in response to Israel's infidelity. And in the midst of all this, Elijah makes his way to Samaria, the capital, and presents himself to Ahab personally. Elijah proposes a contest between their respective gods. The famous trial with 450 Baalist prophets and 400 prophets of Asherah on one side, and Elijah all by his lonesome on the other, with all of the people of the land invited to watch. The contest, set on Mount Carmel, was to see which god would send down fire to consume an offered sacrificial bull. The Baalists went first, placing a dismembered bull on a pile of firewood. The prophets danced in an ecstatic frenzy, cried the name of Baal, and lacerated themselves as a gesture designed to obtain Baal's favor. This goes on nearly all day. Elijah starts to engage in some early Iron Age trash-talking, taunting Baal's prophets for their lack of success. Shout louder, he yells. Maybe he's deep in thought, or relieving himself, or on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. Incidentally, yes, the Hebrew does say relieving himself, but most modern translations apparently don't appreciate Elijah's particular brand of humor. Of course, nothing happens. Now it's Elijah's turn. He repairs the dismantled altar of Yahweh with twelve stones and digs a trench around it. He puts on wood and the sacrifice, then drenches the whole thing with water until the trench is full. Then he asks God to do what needs to be done and gets instant results when fire from heaven comes down and consumes the bull, wood, stones, dust, and the water in the trench. The point being made, and the spectators persuaded, Elijah has the prophets of Baal taken and killed. 
There's no mention of what happens to the prophets of Asherah mentioned earlier. I suspect that was a later edition not resolved in the denouement of this story. In answer to the people's change of heart, shortly thereafter it rains, breaking the drought. Now, there are several points of similarity here between Elijah and Moses. First, Moses also called down fire from heaven on his enemies in Numbers 11, and calls down fire to consume a sacrifice in Leviticus 9. Like Moses, Elijah escaped into the wilderness fearing for his life. His use of the twelve stones to repair the holy altar recalls Moses setting up twelve pillars at Sinai for the twelve tribes of Israel. Where Moses gathers all Israel around Sinai, Elijah gathers them at Mount Carmel. Elijah also confronts the ruling monarch in his own palace, just as Moses did with Pharaoh. And, as Moses bested the magicians of Pharaoh, so Elijah was victorious over Baal's prophets. In fact, there are numerous parallels, too many to enumerate here, but if you compare the references to Moses with the stories of Elijah, you'll find plenty of additional parallels on your own. records that Jezebel was not pleased at all by this turn of events, and was even more determined to hunt down Elijah, so he fled, thinking that he had failed, and that he was the last worshiper of Yahweh. God guides him through the wilderness until he reached Mount Horeb. This is the same mountain as Sinai, but in the North Kingdom they called it Horeb. As parallels with Moses go, this is about as obvious as it gets. God speaks with Elijah, and there assures him that there are more Israelites who have not fallen into Baal worship than he thinks, and outlines his plans for winning back his people. Part of that plan was to anoint an as yet unknown Yahweh worshipper named Jehu, who was not part of the Amrit dynasty, to overthrow Ahab and eventually take over as king of Israel. There's another incident that takes place here that has always fascinated me, a demonstration of divine power that indicated not where God is, but where he is not. 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 13. God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have always found this to be an interesting and rather moving passage, but also a little perplexing. 
The previous chapters make very strong associations between God and excessive natural forces, the whole fire-from-heaven thing and a massive rainstorm stopping a drought on cue and all that. But I wonder if that may be the point. This passage almost feels like a corrective to the idea of Yahweh as a thunderbolt-hurling, world-shaking deity that was the image many foreign nations had of their own gods, Baal not the least. In fact, this is one of the many features of the Deuteronomic history. It represents a distinct movement away from a very active, one might almost say micromanaging God, to one that is just a little more distant, less directly involved in human affairs. One thing that is inescapable in these stories of both Elijah and Elisha is that in spite of the bit about a god who speaks in silence or through a still small voice, this is also a god who plays for keeps. He is dangerous, and so are his prophets. Elijah wastes a hundred soldiers sent to bring him before the king, crisping them with fire from heaven. Elisha famously curses a band of taunting boys, forty-two of whom are summarily mauled by two bad-tempered she-bears. While this is shocking to our modern sensibilities, it is also true that these tales have a strong whiff of the legendary about them. They are part of the Elijah-Elisha tradition, and so were incorporated into the history. They also represent what we might call the high-water mark when it comes to prophetic figures as magical characters. As we move further and further from Elijah and Elisha, miraculous events of this kind become less and less a part of the activities of typical prophets. Elijah's passing is also very much like that of Moses, where in Deuteronomy 34 Moses just sort of disappears. Elijah is taken up into heaven in a flaming chariot, and, like Moses, his prophetic mantle falls literally and figuratively on his servant to carry on his work. Elisha, like Elijah before him, continues to show clear parallels with Moses. He does many of the same kinds of miracles as Moses and his mentor Elijah. He raises the dead, multiplies food as Elijah did for the widow who sheltered him at one point. He divides the waters of the Jordan, turned water to blood, and many other miracles beyond those of Elijah or Moses. However, while Elijah was a wandering figure, mostly a loner and dressed as a wild man in the desert, Elisha had a completely different style. He was more settled, more inclined to stay in one place. Elisha also built up a following of other prophets who would work themselves into a frenzy through music. Elisha was also far more political than Elijah was. He was regularly consulted by tribal elders. He even dealt with officials from Damascus who were sworn enemies of the king of Israel, such as when he healed a Syrian general, Naaman, of leprosy. But even with this political involvement, Elisha remained steadfastly outside the royal court or the mainstream of Israelite politics, never allowing himself to be co-opted by the current establishment. Another major difference between Elisha and Elijah was that while Elijah was a champion of the poor and the oppressed, 
Elisha shows less of an interest in these issues. His focus is more on his opposition to royal officials and governments that were unfaithful to Yahweh, which became a hallmark of later prophecy both in Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Elijah and Elisha's stories seem to be a block that was composed separately and inserted into the text later. One reason scholars think this may be the case is because we don't see the moral evaluations at the end of royal reigns that we see elsewhere in the book of Kings. But the theology implicit in the Elijah and Elisha stories fits very well with the overall theology of Kings and that of the Deuteronomistic history, namely that neglecting or flouting the terms of the covenant with God as received through Moses was a sure path to disaster and destruction. As we have seen elsewhere, the authors of Kings are less concerned with what various kings did than with how faithful they were. For example, we talked last time about King Omri, who was clearly a powerful, dynamic ruler who enjoyed a great deal of political, economic, and military success, but he barely gets any mention in Kings or elsewhere in the Old Testament, because his devotion to Yahweh was found wanting, and his other successes were considered of little or no account. This makes these books frustrating for historically-minded readers who look for a more conventional standard by which one evaluates historical characters. One must remember that the authors had their priorities, and these histories must be read from that perspective. Finally, we can't leave the subject of Elijah without some discussion of his place in eschatological and apocalyptic literature and his role in the earliest Christian movement. Elijah was such a commanding presence that the Old Testament ends with a prophecy that God would send Elijah back before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. By the time of Jesus, Jewish religion generally held that Elijah's appearance would be a sign that the Messiah would soon appear. John the Baptist, with his camel's hair clothing and wild appearance, certainly fit that bill. The Gospels record that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses both appeared to Jesus. There is also an interesting passage from Justin Martyr's account of his debate with Trypho, a rabbi who lived early in the second century. Trypho claims that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because, as he puts it, quote, Christ, if he has indeed been born or exists anywhere, has no power until Elijah comes to anoint him and make him manifest to all, close quote. This makes clear why the account of the Transfiguration was such an important part of early Christian doctrine, and especially why the Gospel of Matthew offers such a detailed account, since Matthew's Gospel was intended to counter Jewish critics of the Christian community living in Antioch. Jewish tradition also holds that when Elijah comes, it will be during the celebration of Passover. That is the reason why, in homes across Judaism, when the Passover meal is spread, a seat is left vacant for Elijah when he returns.
Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.